Good morning, church. How are you guys doing? It's good to be with you guys. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open to Acts chapter 9. This morning we're looking at chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. If you don't own a Bible, we've got some uh, in the, on the table here. I think we do. If we don't, let me know. Uh, I'd love to gift you a Bible if you don't own a copy of God's Word. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can follow along. The verses will be up on our screen this morning. All righty. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Jerusalem by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, so they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And as he spoke and disputed among the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 31. This morning we're considering the conversion of one of the most famous characters in the story of the Bible, a man named Saul. He later was called the Apostle Paul, but here he's called Saul. And Acts is the second of a two-part book, or two-part series, if you will, written by a guy named Luke, who was writing to his friend Theophilus about 30 years after Jesus had raised from the dead. And this story includes kind of the origin, the history, if you will, of the early church. What is, if you are a Christian, what is our early history? You can look to the book of Acts. The story begins with 
Jesus promising to his disciples that the Spirit would come, and then he ascends into heaven, and then he sends the Spirit. And the story ends with the Apostle Paul imprisoned in Rome, sharing the gospel. It goes from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is what, this is what the story that Acts traces, if you will, of the early church. And it could be that Luke, he's writing this to his friend Theophilus. He wants to catch him up on all that's happened the last 30 years. So if you will, Acts is kind of a series of flashbacks of what has happened in the life of the church. He wanted his friend to have certainty about what he has been taught. So he provides what you consider a series of flashbacks. What are the key moments? What are the key events? Who are the key people that shaped the Christian faith as we know it today? Be what we learn in Acts. And we have a fascination. We have an enjoyment of flashbacks in modern stories, don't we? We like a good flashback in a film or in a novel or in a, a TV series. It's like how in the movie Forrest Gump, right? The movie starts with Forrest. He's sitting on a bench. You guys know the movie? Forrest Gump. He's sitting on the, he's sitting on the bench and he's talking with someone who doesn't seem very interested in him. And he says, he starts pointing to her shoes. He says, those are nice shoes. Like, well, they're actually uncomfortable. And then he says, well, you know, my mom said you can tell a lot about a person from their shoes, where they've been, where they're going, right? I don't want to do the, I can't do the impersonation. You guys wouldn't want me to do that. But he says, he, he says, I bet if I thought real hard, I could remember my first pair of shoes. And he, he's closing his eyes, he's thinking real hard, and the camera zooms in on Forrest on his face, and then it flashes back to his childhood, right? And he's got the metal braces on. Right, whether it's Forrest Gump or The Notebook, maybe this is more of your speed, or The Great Gatsby, or even How I Met Your Mother, right? We like flashbacks. We like being told what shaped me to be the person that I am, right? How did Ted Mosby meet his wife? Or is he talking to his kids? Kids, right? You know? Acts is the common history of all followers of Jesus. What is our history? All right, what if, if Luke could be like, kids, let me tell you how Jesus met Saul. You'd tell Acts 9, right? Doesn't necessarily apply as like not our mother, but you guys get the point, right? <laughs> Saul of Tarsus is a central figure in the New Testament and the history of Christianity. He wrote 13 of the 27 letters. I can't do math very well, but I know that's almost half, right? And he, over half of the book of Acts actually is about, it's written about the missionary journeys of Saul. And I, I know this math better because 28 divides more equally into two. Like 13 through 28 is about Saul. Well, that's more than half, right? I was better in English than math at school. So you guys got to, you know, <laughs> give me some. Thank you, Thomas. Yes. He was one of the most influential teachers and interpreters of the teaching of Jesus, of the gospel, and how the church should apply it. How does the gospel apply to everyday life? How does the gospel apply to the church, or to family, or to marriage, or to relationships? And in the first eight chapters of the book of Acts, Luke has recorded what happened in Jerusalem. And then it shifted to looking at Philip and how the, because of the persecution that happened to a guy named Stephen, the, the church was dispersed throughout and, and out of Jerusalem. The only people that stayed in Jerusalem were the apostles. And Philip goes into Samaria, and he's crossing geographic and ethnic and what would formerly be you know, racial tensions. He's crossing these boundaries. And then he goes to, uh, all into Judea. He talks with an Ethiopian eunuch. And, and now we come to Acts 9, which is beginning with Saul, this guy Saul, who's going to take the gospel into Judea and to all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is how the, the, the story of Acts is unfolding in this way. You guys with me? All righty. The rest of Acts is this expansion into the, the gospel going to the ends of the earth, and it starts with this conversion of, of Saul. Right, the, early, the early followers of Jesus, they didn't see themselves starting necessarily a new faith. They, they saw themselves fulfilling what the prophets, the ancient Jewish prophets, the Hebrew scriptures had looked towards. So they're trying to tell you know, their, their Jewish brothers and sisters, hey, Jesus is the one that we looked forward to. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So while the message of the gospel started with the Jews, right? Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jewish man. He had disciples that were Middle Eastern Jewish men and women. But the gospel was not just supposed to stay a Jewish message of good news. It was to go to the ends of the earth. And that's what we'll see. Gentiles in 
the Mediterranean and Italy and Africa and the Middle East and Asia and Europe and every nation and people group, this is where the gospel is to go forth to. And we're still in that process. There's still people around the world that have not heard the message of Jesus. They don't have the opportunity to respond to it in faith. They haven't heard it in their language. So it may have been that this, this eunuch that we saw in, in Acts chapter 8, he goes along and he helps start the key churches that we see in Africa in Alexandria, which would be in modern-day Egypt, or in Carthage, which would be modern-day Tunisia. These are some key, key spots in the church. But then he focuses in on the story of the conversion of Saul. Saul was a Hellenist Jew. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. He was a Roman citizen, so he was a great candidate to be someone who could take the gospel to the, the Greek-speaking rest of the world. And this is a compelling story, I think, in Acts 9 of the, the, the radical grace of God that shows us that no one is outside of the reach of God. No one is like too far off. They've done too many bad things to be loved by God. We see that in, in Saul. And he's, he's an enemy. He's, he's not just kind of apathetic to Jesus. He's actually opposing him. He's going against him. Look at the language that, that Luke uses, Acts 9, verse 1. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He's asking for letters to the synagogues so that if anyone has been belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's like actively going after the church to imprison them and end this movement of Jesus. Right? We're introduced to this guy named Acts, this guy named Acts, this guy named Saul in Acts 7, 58. And we're introduced to this guy as, as the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the Jewish religious leaders, are stoning this guy named Stephen because Stephen has got up and he's given a sermon where he's essentially saying to his fellow brothers and sisters, his Jewish friends, guys, we've, we've historically rebelled against God and we haven't listened to the prophets. And in fact, the, the culmination of our rebellion and our stiff nakedness, if you will, is we've rejected the Messiah. We've rejected Jesus. We missed him. And this makes the Jewish leaders so angry, they, they, they kill him, they murder him, they stone him. And we're told in Acts 7, 58, that these religious leaders who are stoning Stephen, they cast him, Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul's the one, he's in, in chapter 8, verse 1, 2, where he's, he's approving of this execution. He's, he's going after Christians, he's killing them. He's in Acts 8, 3, he's ravaging the church. He's seeking to destroy it. He's going house to house, dragging people off who are Christians and imprisoning them. And it's this Saul, this Saul who's breathing threats, murderous threats out against disciples of Jesus. He's looking for any followers of the way. I, I like that. I don't know why that didn't catch on and Christians did, right? It's like, maybe this is what the Mandalorian picked up on, right? This is the way. You guys know what I'm talking about? No, okay. Some of, okay, well, moving on. Uh, <laughs> belonging to the way. And this might have been because Jesus said, you know, I am the way and the truth and the life. But they were identifying themselves as the way. Jesus says the way to salvation. It might have been, this is, this is my mind, think about this is the way to, like, to live as God has called us to live in life and joy and flourishing. This is the way. I like that. Anyways, belonging to the way, any Christians, he's actively opposing and he's about to have his whole life turned around. So he's going to Damascus. He's looking for Christians to imprison. There's some modern-day Syria. It's one of the oldest continually inhabited cities in the world, Damascus. It's like 130 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Right? We'll go this way. He's on this road. It's like a six-day journey, by the way, from Jerusalem. He's on the way, and he meets the resurrected Jesus. Suddenly there's a light from heaven. And, and he hears this voice, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't that interesting too? Paul was going after Saul, excuse me. I might confuse that a lot, guys, throughout this whole sermon. But when I say Paul, I mean Paul. And when I say Paul, I mean Saul. It's like the same person, okay? I have some, some dyslexia, and the fact that the names sound so similar too, it's like not really helpful to me. But Saul and Paul. Anyways, here we go. Jesus so identifies with his people that when he's talking with Saul, he says, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, hey, why are you persecuting the church? Which you could have said that. Why are you going after my people? He says, no, why are you persecuting me? It's not as though there's Jesus and then there's the church, 
right? There's Jesus and then there's his followers. Like, I can love Jesus, but I don't necessarily like the church, right? Like, no, you love Jesus, you love the church. That's what happens. There's not separate entities. You're joined with Jesus, you're joined with his people. <laughs> so you follow Jesus, you're stuck with Jesus' followers. That's the point. All the people in this room, we're stuck together. We're following Jesus. Jesus taught his followers that what you do to the least of these, you do to me. Right, so there's, this, there's this, this union, this, this identification of Jesus with his church. That's comforting to me. And, and Paul asks, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But go and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. Right, the guys who are with him, they're left speechless. They heard a voice. They didn't see anyone. And this could have been, uh, this means that the men who were with Saul, maybe they, they, they saw the light, they saw something, but the, the, the message was only like understandable to Paul. It was only intelligible to him. The content of the words, the understanding of the revelation was only understandable to Paul. But this wasn't just something that was like he made up in his mind. This wasn't just a mental vision. This wasn't something in his psychological state. This, this is something that every people could witness. Something happened and he's blinded temporarily. And Luke says, he rose from the ground and though his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He could have just said he was blind. Right, Luke could have just written that. But he, I think he writes this as a way, of, it's a, kind of a play on words. He opened his eyes, but he saw nothing. Like his spiritual eyes were opened to see the truth. Now his physical eyes were, were blinded. He could no longer see. And this could have been a sign, like a living illustration, because in the Old Testament, like the people of God were often described as blind. Like a, and because of their rebellion, they were blinded. But I also think it's, it's important that he's blinded and healed in the case of someone else coming to him. I think, I think God is wanting to show him something about healing and the importance of community because it's a member of the church, a guy named Ananias who prays for him, who comforts him, who lays hands on him, and Saul regains the sight and is strengthened after that event from Ananias. Like, and Luke tells us before Ananias got there, he, he didn't eat or drink for three days. Like he might have been so shook, as they say. Amazed, right? I'm shook. Or what's the word people say? Eli? No? Oh, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Baffled? Not bamboozled. Perplexed? God, I can't think of it. Anyways, he, he's processing so much, right? Imagine giving your whole life to the destruction of something, finding out, no, you're actually persecuting God. Like you could be, I would be in shock. Shook. That's the word I was looking for. I'm shook, right? Okay. Sorry, guys. <laughs> he was so shocked, it could have been, you know, he was temporarily blind to cultivate like a time of reflection. It's blinded. It's a lot to take in. You give your life to the destruction of, actually, in fact, you find out you're, you're wrong the whole time. And the scene shifts in, in verse 10 to this guy named Ananias. And the Lord says to Ananias, he talks to him in a vision, go, rise to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered him, Lord, I've heard many from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. It's like, God, are you sure this is the right one? I've heard about this guy. This is the guy who actually hates Christians and has given his life to imprison them. I don't think I, I, don't think I want to be going and praying for this guy. Probably pray for his death, not his healing. Right, God? And he doesn't really even entertain what God says back, does he? He says, go. <laughs> Oh, I love that. Go, he's the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In other words, I have a plan for his life that you could never even imagine. You, you've, heard about, you've, you've heard about what he's, he's done before, but he's my instrument to take the gospel to places that it, it'll never go before. Kings, Gentiles, the children of Israel. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him. Listen, listen to what he says too. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may gain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. 
And immediately something like scales from, from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. Now, I was reading, as I was thinking about this passage this week, I was thinking, why didn't God just heal Saul as he was praying? Right? Saul was praying. Why didn't God just answer his prayers and, and heal him then? Why did he send Ananias? Certainly could have answered his prayers and healed him apart from Ananias, right? I think he wanted to show Saul that following Jesus is not this lone wolf endeavor. The word for baptism means immersion. Being immersed in water, is, it's symbolic for the old life being gone away. And when you come out of the water, it's, it's symbolic of you're raised with Jesus to walk a new kind of life. And when we baptize someone, it's not as though we go, okay, Chris, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Chris goes running off the diving board and does a huge cannonball into the water. Like, baptized, right? <laughs> Why can't we baptize ourselves? You just kind of stand in the water and, you know, dead fish in, right? It doesn't work like that. It could, right? It, is, is it just about getting submerged in water? Jumping off the dock and going all the way under and coming up again? There's a person that's standing next to the person who is being baptized, not because they need physical help to get wet, <laughs> usually. Not because they need help to get submerged. But it's because it signifies, right, there's a friend, there's a spiritual leader, there's a pastor, there's a, a parent of someone who has been instrumental in them following Jesus, signifying, I'm with you. We're walking in this together. You're being immersed into a shared life. We're in this together. It's a picture of that followers of Jesus are called to follow Jesus with other followers of Jesus. Christians are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because we have a new Father now. And, and when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he didn't say, my Father in heaven. He said, our Father. It's a shared Father that we have. We're in a family. We're brothers and sisters. We have a new boss. It's no longer someone else. It's no longer ourselves. We have a new Father in God who is our director. We no longer have the anxiety and the depression of trying to provide for ourselves. We trust our Father will provide for us. Amen? We have a new Savior and Lord in Jesus being baptized in the name of the Son. He saved us. We, he's our new master. We follow him. We find rest for our souls. We no longer have to strive and cease untiringly to make ourselves good or to earn right works with God. Jesus is our Savior. And we're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit. Because we have new power to overcome sin. We have new power to become who God has made us to be. We have power to actually follow God. Yes. We have power to love people that we formerly would not love or be in community with. We can be a church in which we have people from all kinds of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic demographics, different geographical locations that we can love each other as family. And I've seen it work in his. Amen? Saul, who becomes an apostle, he lives in community and he serves in community. He travels in community. He starts new churches and teams. This is not, it's all about Saul. It's all about Paul. It's a lone wolf, you know, best-selling author, spotlights on him, kind of a thing. This is a team. This is community. You read through Paul's letters. At the end of the letters, there's usually a couple of paragraphs that talk about who he's with, who he's saying hi to. He, he, he worked in a team. And unfortunately, right, lots of abuse and unhealth happens in the context of relationship, toxic relationships, by unhealthy and bitter people. Forgiveness and healing and restoration also happens in the context of community and in relationship. And Lord willing, we can be that kind of loving, healing community that God has designed us to be. Amen. Amen. So Paul spends some time with the disciples at Damascus. He's, he's brought into a forgiving community of grace. Ananias demonstrates his faith in the forgiveness and mercy of God. Those who are formerly were doing evil to the saints at Jerusalem will have their lives changed to be used by God, to be his instrument. Like Ananias sees all this, he prays for him. They're, they're brought in. He spent some time with other disciples at Damascus. And look at verse 20. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. Like right away, he's like, yeah, I, I, was, I was all wrong about this. And I've met Jesus. And let me tell you, he is the Messiah. 
We don't need to persecute these Christians. We need to help and encourage and love these Christians and advance this message. And all who heard it were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And he did not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests. Like other people knew he was coming to Damascus to imprison Christians. And now they're singing, preaching in the synagogue, Jesus is God. <laughs> hey, what happened here? What happened? Why is his life so changed? And he says, Saul increased all the more in strength. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving, he was persuading that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. He's, he's amazing the people that are hearing him. They're confounded. They're baffled. So <laughs> instead of listening to him, responding, wow, man, if this guy was formally trying to persecute the church and now he's advancing it. He, he formally was trying against Christians. Now he is a Christian. Maybe we should listen to what he has to say. Nope, kill him, right? Our biggest asset has become our biggest threat. What happened in my favorite movies, Jason Bourne? When the CIA agent, secret agent in the Treadstone program kind of comes to his senses and realizes what he's a part of and tries to seek to expose it, and Blackbriar and Treadstone, what do they do? They send asset after asset, assassin after assassin to kill Jason Bourne. And uh, Paul's like a spiritual Jason Bourne, right? Say. Right, their plot becomes known to Saul. They're trying to kill him. This is what happens when one of your greatest assets becomes your, one of your biggest threats. They want to kill him. So they're waiting at the gate. And in, in the ancient cities, cities had like a gate. There was one way in, one way out. It'd be like if, if there wasn't 16th Avenue, or there wasn't Pack Highway, and the only way in and out of Des Moines was through Marine View Drive. So the people are waiting at the corner of 16th, 216th, and Marine View, and they're waiting. I don't know what kind of car Saul would have driven. They're just waiting for Saul to ambush him and to kill him. Whereas like if there was no ferry, no low bridge, no First Avenue South Bridge in West Seattle, you're stuck on that island. You got to go over the West Seattle Bridge. They're waiting there to kill him. But, but Paul hears about this news. The disciples hear about this news. And at night, they lower him down through an opening in the wall in a basket and he escapes. I don't know what a similar analogy would be in our time, but you guys get the point. And he, he goes to Jerusalem and he tries to join the disciples. And the disciples are, they don't believe that he's really a disciple. You know, maybe they're thinking, okay, maybe this is some sort of secret spy. Maybe he's a double, what would it be, a triple agent at that point? Double agent. He's a spy. He says he's a Christian, but he's really still with the Jews. And he's going to come to find out, you know, all of our networks and meet with the apostles and kill us. They, they, don't, they don't trust it. Yeah, he had professed faith, maybe, so he could get close to us. But he's not joining us. And 27, verse 27, it says, But Barnabas, son of encouragement, took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord when he spoke to them, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. They're saying, no, no, this guy's preaching Jesus, and he was, he was about to be killed because he was preaching Jesus. So I don't think this guy's a spy. I think this guy's really a disciple. And he joins with the church of Jerusalem, says they went in and out, which is the phrase of talking about how he was with them at Jerusalem, boldly preaching in the name of the Lord. But what happens again? <laughs> like everywhere this guy goes, he's got a target on his back. They want to kill him. When the brothers learn of this, they help him, hey, get out of town, man. Leave Jerusalem. They go up to the kind of a coast town, which is Caesarea, and they, they bring him up to Tarsus, would be kind of modern day Turkey. So here's Saul, right? The, the former persecutor of the church, he meets Jesus on his way to to persecute the church. He's baptized in that city and he immediately starts proving to the people that are in that city that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. He starts showing to the Jews and to the Hellenists, who are the Greek-speaking Jews, that the one that they've looked for in the Old Testament, the one that the, the Hebrew prophets look forward to is fulfilled in Jesus. And, and they, as a people, have actually missed it. They have betrayed and murdered this Messiah, but he's risen and he's calling people to follow him. They try to kill him. He goes to Jerusalem. He shares the same message. The church doesn't believe that he was a disciple. He tries to join them. And what does, what does Saul need to join the church in Jerusalem? Do you guys see the theme? Another follower of Jesus to vouch for him, to confirm his, his calling and his, his true status as a disciple. And this is how God has designed the church, I believe. 
The church has designed, God has designed the church to confirm and encourage one another in our faith. How do we really know that we're a Christian? And one of the evidences is confirmed in being among God's people. It's through the confirmation and witnesses of our brothers and sisters in the faith. It's not just kind of a me and you, Jesus. This is a, it's a we. Me and we, no, me and we and Jesus, right? Us and Jesus, yeah. Some of the clearest teaching in the Bible about some of the evidences of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus is found in the book of 1 John. And he talks about the way to become a Christian, yes, is by faith, but this faith, it doesn't stay alone. The, the faith is evidence. It works itself out in, in certain ways. It, it means a growing desire for relationship with God and with his people, John says. It's a growing awareness of our need for God and for others. It's an awareness of our sin. It's demonstrated in our obedience to Jesus. It's evidence in our love for our fellow brothers and sisters. It's not as though it's, it's optional to love the people of Jesus. It's not as though loving the church is optional. It's, it's what will happen, in fact, if there is genuine salvation and conversion. So whether it's Ananias or Barnabas in the story of Saul, we see the importance of Christian relationship and fellowship and community and healing and confirmation and encouragement and attestation. And as a summary statement to the impact of Saul's conversion, how the church is shaped by these events, look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, we're probably thinking in this point, Acts 1.8, which Jesus promises disciples they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and to all Judea, and to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Right? This is another summary statement. The church throughout all Judea, and Galilee, and Samaria had peace, and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What's the aftermath? What's the result of a, a great threat, a great persecutor, a great enemy of the church? They have peace in the church. They're comforted in the Holy Spirit. One of the great enemies and persecutors of the church had his life changed in a powerful way where he's actually now advancing the same message that he was trying to destroy. This brings the church peace. They experience peace. And they have comfort and encouragement of the Holy Spirit as they walk or behave and live in the fear of the Lord. And I, I was studying all week about, okay, that kind of seems like a little random phrase to include at the end there about Saul. Fear of the Lord. What's up with that? Why would he include that there at the end? And it's a phrase, fear of the Lord. It doesn't necessarily mean like, I'm afraid of God, like I want to run away from him. But it's like a reverential awe, like a wonder, an amazement at God. And fear of the Lord is like, I think they were led to amazement at look at the kind of God that we worship who can take someone like Saul and make him not only a brother, but one of our leaders and our teachers. That's amazing. And I think the story is to cultivate in us a similar kind of thing. Isn't it? Well, I think it is. Look at Saul and see how his life was transformed by Jesus and stand amazed that we too get to follow the same Jesus. When you talk about fear, it's, it's about profound respect. It's, it's the thing or the person that has the most weight in your life, you could think about. So the, the fear of the Lord, I think Luke is describing, Jesus had the most weight in their life. They, they had, Jesus had their amazement. Jesus had their attention. Jesus had their, their worship, their gaze. So we think, what, what is the true object of your affection? What has the most weight in your life? What do you fear most, if you will? You could think about, what, well, what do I fear losing? Maybe that will, that will help me kind of mine the depths of my heart and help me explore what's going on in this. We, we talk about our heart being here, right? But it's some sort of a spiritual part in this physical form, right? That's what I think. You guys look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> I feel like that a little bit sometimes. If we fear loss of status, respect, acclamation, that's at the center of our hearts. We might be prone to worship, image, ourself, the approval of others. This is where I can find myself struggling. If we're afraid to be alone with ourselves, our thoughts, we might have an unhealthy expectation of others. We might be prone to worship others, an unhealthy dependence upon others, a 
codependence upon others, our need for protection, help, refuge is sought to be filled by someone or something that it was never intended to be filled by. What is it that if you lost would make your life meaningless? What is that thing? What is it that you're truly living for? What, means, what does it mean to, what's fear? I was talking about this phrase. It seems that Luke records since the early church believed that it was Jesus and Jesus who they feared, Jesus who held the most weight in their life, they had peace and comfort. We know we're controlled by what we seek. If something threatens what you fear losing, you'll become scared and anxious. If something prevents you from it, you'll become bitter and angry. What is it that you seek? What has the most weight in your life? What happens if you fail that thing? will bring huge shame and guilt to you. Someone who captured this thought is an American writer named David Foster Wallace. He was an award-winning, best-selling novelist. <laughs> he once wrote a sentence that was more than a thousand words long. You think Paul has run on sentences? What he's, he says, he, he gave a, a speech at Kenyon College. He said to the graduating class there, he says, everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they were to tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. So in other words, there is something that we fear. There is something that captures us. There is something that has ultimate weight in our life. And what I'm trying to explain and to encourage us and to see in the story is that a Christian is called to have Jesus be that object, that person, that weight, the one that we fear most. The church feared Jesus above all, and in the comfort of the Spirit, Luke writes, they grew, they, they multiplied. The message of the Christian faith is that this Jesus is the Savior to all people. He shows no partiality. The gospel crosses ethnic and geographic boundaries. It's for every tongue and nation and everyone in the world. And we see in Saul, this grace, this forgiveness, this love is even for the worst, you say, of sinners like a guy named Saul, and like people like us. The Apostle Paul actually wrote, he wrote to one of his sons in the faith, a, a church leader that he was mentoring, a guy named Timothy. This is what he wrote about his own story. He said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Look at how he describes himself. Of whom I'm the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So you can say, you think you can sin more than Saul? Saul's saying, oh, you can't. I'm the best sinner. I'm the foremost. And as the best sinner, I'm an example to show that anyone who doesn't, like no one can sin more than me. So anyone who sins, even equal to me, can be forgiven. Like I'm an example of perfect patience to those who would follow and believe in Jesus. I don't know if he was being literal or just being like, yeah, that's how we should view ourselves too. Like, I'm, I'm the worst sinner. But the point is, he is an example for us to be encouraged to believe and to see the great patience and grace of God. The, the good news of the kingdom of God is that the king has returned. The creator God who made all things, the one who made the world, perfect in a life of flourishing, and he called it very good. Yet in our rebellion, humanity turned away from God. We thought we knew how to rule God's creation better than him. We, we wanted to determine right from wrong for ourselves. 
And this is what we continually do in the history of humanity. We put ourselves in God's place. We, we wear the crown. We know the best path for ourselves. We, we know the, the right way of flourishing in life and joy. And yet God, from the very beginning, had a plan to reconcile and redeem all things, all people, to himself. He promised right after the fall, right after humanity turns from God. He says the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. It's the first example of the gospel in the whole Bible, Genesis 3.15. God is going to crush the head of the serpent. What, what caused this world to be broken and to unravel? Why there is so much pain and suffering in the world because of the sin and rebellion? He says, I'm going to deal with that one day, and it's going to come through the offspring, the seed of the woman. In the Bible, it's traces this, this seed. The promise continues to a guy named Abraham. And Abraham is a man who lives by faith, and God tells to Abraham, hey, your family is going to be a blessing, and through your family, I'm going to bless the whole world. And Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob. And God tells one of Jacob's son, Judah, hey, one of your sons is going to rule. The scepter is not going to depart from Judah. And then we read later into the Bible, we continue in the narrative of the Bible, and we see this guy named David. And what tribe is David from? He's from the tribe of Judah. And God tells him this promise, from your line now is going to come a king who's going to establish a forever kingdom, a kingdom he says of equity and justice and peace and evil will be no more. It's going to be an eternal forever kingdom, a, a dynasty, if you will. And then we flip the pages of the Bible into the New Testament. And who do we see Jesus being the descendant of? Adam and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David. And Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe the good news. The good news that God is coming to restore his creation that was broken by sin. You might think this king might just set up this throne immediately, but he had to deal with our brokenness and our sin and our rebellion. So his moment of enthronement as king is actually on the cross, where Jesus, he takes the punishment, the consequence of our sin upon himself. He takes the, the wages of our sin upon himself. He makes the payment that we could never pay. And this is how restoration begins. Like, so the kingdom of God is here, but it's also not yet because, you know, we, we still die. There's still racism in this world, right? People still hate each other. There's still natural disasters, right? In God's good kingdom, that's, that's not going to be, that's not going to be a thing. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. We're not going to die. We're not going to age. We're gonna have these, well, I don't think we're going to age because age didn't come into death, Right? We're, we're going to have these glorified eternal bodies. No more back pain, amen? No more knee pain. We're like struggling to get out of bed. And we long for this day when, when Jesus is going to come again and he's going to fully establish the kingdom. The first time he came, he came to deal with sin, to offer this forgiveness to any who might believe in him. The second time he comes, he's going to set up this kingdom fully, finally, forever. And in this time of the already but not yet, Jesus is calling any to himself that would come. And there is no one, like we see in the story of Saul, who is too far from God. And as I was thinking about the passage this week, I was struck with the thought of who in my life have I written off because they are too sinful? Who might, like Ananias, the Lord be putting on my heart, to seek to love and to serve and to minister to that I have, frankly, just written off? Or who, like, like how Barnabas takes Saul and he his, his name is son of encouragement, who might God be placing in our life in front of us that, that we can walk alongside and to encourage and to strengthen them? God calls us, like Ananias, to love and pursue and minister to those who might have been far off. but the kingdom of God is advancing in and through the church. That's what's happening. I see it happening in this church. The church has an opportunity, brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity to display to the world what the kingdom of God is like. And people can hear the message in the preaching of, of the Bible, right? You can hear what this kingdom is all about, but we can actually display it in the way that we live. 
we can make the gospel visible in the way that we live so that when others come into our church, they feel welcomed and accepted just like Jesus welcomed them. That has a very powerful effect. That is, I believe, what, what, what's caused many of you to come into this church. You've seen the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus in this body among these people. It's not like, wow, Daniel really is so amazing. I can't wait to hear him. It's like, no, I want to be with the people of God. I want to fellowship with my brothers and sisters. We have that opportunity to display what, what the kingdom of God is like. It's not a community of hate. It's not a community of selfishness and it's all about me. How can I serve? It's a community of how can I serve you? How can I give myself to you in love? It's, it's not a community that's cons- consumed by kind of apathy and I don't really care about you. I'm going to be distant to you. It's a community of I'm going to move in towards you. I'm going to pursue. I'm going to move closer. It's a community of forgiveness, not bitterness and division. A community of oneness and unity. It's a community of people that, like Saul, have surrendered their life to Jesus. They've had their whole lives turned around, and they now have Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And we're following him. And you're in this with me. I'm in this with you. We're doing this together. You're stuck with me. And I'm stuck with you. You can leave this church, yes. You could go somewhere else. If you're here, I'm with you. And I, I pray you're with me. I can't do this on my own. I can't follow Jesus on my own. I need my brothers and my sisters to encourage me. We might not have, not have the same call as Saul. If you think about the story, we might, we might not be blinded and have something like scales fall off our eyes. What is that? Like fish scales? Dragon scales? Lizard scales? Do lizards have scales? Snakes? What, what has scales? Fish? Is it just fish? Fish and dragons? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, thanks, Peter. We well, might not have something fall from our eyes, but if we've met Jesus, our eyes have been spiritually opened. Someone that we thought of as like, oh, yeah, Jesus, cool. Like, I, I grew up in church. I, I remember hearing about Jesus. You know what I really loved? Myself. Oh, I was awesome. I was worthy to be praised. I would daydream about becoming a major league star and people would just worship my glory and my fame and I had this sick break at the knees curveball and this fastball that would you know, just tail away from you that you couldn't hit. This is one of my fantasies, right? But deep, deep down I had this fear of, of being rejected and not wanted. And I don't have the same call as Saul to write the Bible. <laughs> but I do have a call, like Saul, to surrender my whole life to Jesus and ask that, that he would use me as his instrument to show other people what he is like. And I pray that we would have the same commitment. We all have different areas that God has placed us in, don't we? We work in different places. We live in different houses. We're not like in a commune, you know. That would be kind of fun, but that just kind of would be weird, I think, too. But God does call us, like Saul, to follow him, to give our lives to him, and to ask that our lives would continually be transformed by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's a miracle. The biggest, I think that's one of the... We read the story here, and we say, like, oh, God, he's appeared in glory, has something like he's blinded, and we say, kind of miraculous, that's kind of weird. The biggest miracle is that the God of the universe died and rose again for us. If we could believe that, that God actually loves you, he, he died, he gave his son for you, that if you stop following how you think your life should live and how, you know, how you, I want to be my own king, if you want to say, no, no, I've done that. I want Jesus to be my savior, my Lord, my king. And I want to live my life based on what he says in his word, not based on what I maybe was taught or what I thought. We continually, church, grow in this amazement of the grace of God. Fear, reverential awe, and walk alongside each other and encourage one another in this 
faith. The gospel humbles us, doesn't it? Shows us that we weren't seeking God when he pursued us, right? Saul wasn't like, oh, I hope I meet Jesus today. I was like, nope, this is the day. Boom, on the way to Damascus, blinded. I'm talking to this guy. I'm orchestrating these events. You are my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the nations. I decided this. This is by my grace. Boom, sheer grace. Boom, there it goes. I said, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus found me. He saved me. He called me by his grace. And he's called us by his grace. Amen? And we give our lives to, I just want to know you, Jesus, and follow you. Would you help me to help others follow Jesus? And would you help me help my brothers and sisters follow Jesus together? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe that you are the only God that if we worship, you will deeply satisfy us. And we know that you are the only God that if we fail you, you will forgive us. Father, I've worshiped other gods. I've worshiped myself. I've worshiped approval. I've worshiped others. I've worshiped my wife. I've worshiped women. And in the midst of my rebellion, in the midst of my turning to all other things, you loved me. You sent your son for me. You sent someone to tell me about Jesus, and you opened my eyes to see him. Thank you. I believe you've done the same for many in this room, many in this church. And Father, I pray that as we consider this story of Saul, we think about just the the extravagant, radical nature of your grace, the kinds of people that you use. They're not amazing by worldly standards. And we just look at this this church, we look at this building and we say, this is, this is nothing amazing here. We look at our, ourselves and we say, oh, we're not considered that great by worldly standards. We don't look at ourselves. We don't look at each other. We don't compare ourselves. We, Father, we want to be more captured and fixed by you. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, help us, like Ananias, to be a person who walks alongside those who others might write off. Help us to be like Barnabas, coming alongside to encourage and strengthen and comfort our brothers and sisters. When we look out at the, the cultural climate in our city, and we know that many are without hope, are without community, they're without loving relationships of forgiveness and grace. And we pray that you would send us to help show them what, what Jesus is like. We, we pray that you might bring them in to this church to help show them what the kingdom of God is like. It's a kingdom of joy. It's a kingdom of, of people love actually to be together. It's a kingdom of, in which when people sin or hurt each other, it's not marked by this passive-aggressive withdrawal and bitterness. It's marked by a forgiveness and moving closer. Would you help us to to demonstrate what this kingdom is like in the way that we live? That others might see the the patience of God, the, the mercy of God on our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.